Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks ever so much for joining me. Uh, not trying to blow my own horn or anything here, folks, but this is another fucking incredible episode. You know why? Because my guests today are Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker, a.k.a. Slater fucking Kinney, who spoke to me about their spark, Patty fucking Smith's legendary album, Horses. That is pretty fucking good, right? Um, I was so excited because Carrie and Corin are musical heroes of mine, so this was quite a thrill. And I also love Carrie's acting work, you know, Portlandia, Carol, Transparent, etc. Amazing. All right. Anyway, you've got the picture. Let's get to it. Quick Slater Kinney facts. Slater Kinney is an American rock band that formed in Olympia, Washington in 1994. The band's current lineup features Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein, following the departure of longtime member Janet Weiss in 2019. Slater Kinney originated as part of the Riot Girl movement and has become a key part of the American indie rock scene. The band is also known for its feminist and liberal politics. The new Slater Kinney album, Little Rope, is out on January 19th. Quick Horses Facts. Horses is the debut studio album by American musician Patti Smith. It was released by Arista Records in 1975. The music on Horses was informed by the minimalist aesthetic of the punk rock genre, then in its formative years. Smith's lyrics on horses were alternately rooted in her own personal experiences, particularly with her family, and in more fantastical imagery. At the time of its release, horses experienced modest commercial success and placed in the top 50 of the American Billboard 200 album chart while being widely acclaimed by music critics. Recognized as a seminal recording in the history of punk and rock, Horses has frequently appeared in professional lists of the greatest albums of all 
time. And there you have it. Are you ready to party? Here comes my chat with Slater Kinney about horses. Can you remember being turned on to horses, hearing it for the first time? Whoever would like to take that question first. Corin. Yeah, I mean, my dad had pretty good, pretty great musical taste, does have great musical taste. And he had this album in his record collection, and it just fascinated me. As a child, I was like, what's happening here? Um, It just was, the image was really iconic. The sound was um, really special. It was just very singular. It was very, um, so incredibly 70s. But, you know, when you're a kid, I mean, I was born in 72. It just was like part of what music was. You know, my parents would listen to music all the time on the records, on the stereo. And I just remember her voice being really singular and um, very striking. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, Carrie, what was, uh, was your experience? I don't recall either of my parents listening to Patti Smith. So it was a little later for me. I was probably in Olympia, Washington, where I went to college. So I was a little older. I was 19 and I bought horses at a thrift store actually. So not even at a proper record store, but it had been such a incendiary record. It certainly was an album that was in the world enough that it could end up at a thrift store. It's sort of surprising to think of that now, but there were copies of those albums out there at at Goodwill. <laughs> and I had known about Patti Smith. I knew it was something that I should listen to. And yeah, so that was my first exposure to it. And then I listened to it. And I think I my first impression was that I was surprised at how difficult of a record it was. It's not an easy record. There are things about it that are not musical in the in the way that we think of of music in terms of popular music. It's challenging, and that is what surprised me. Especially once you get past Gloria, the opening track, you just think, "Oh, this is a poet. This is not just your traditional singer. This is not the traditional approach to a rock band or whatever." configuration you were imagining. This is a new world here. And I think that was what surprised me at first. Yeah. Um, I, I do just need to say, I think Patti Smith would appreciate having her record found in a thrift store. Like everything that she's wearing on that album cover is from Salvation Army. So, you know, it, it's in keeping with the theme. Um, but yeah, exactly that. This like iconic record that everybody talks about so many people have as like a touchstone or uh, an influence and i had the same experience where you like come to this record thinking oh it's going to be i don't know not tapestry but like something that's like really accessible because so many people love it and she gets called the godmother of punk a lot and i think it's, you know, that's a label that she's kind of rejected. And I think it's, you know, there's truth in that if you think of punk as like a family tree, that there, you know, her influence is definitely there. But um, like you said, it's poetry. There's like some kind of beat feeling to some of it, but also combined with 
really striking uh, melodies, like sometimes really, really tough, almost discordant, sometimes, I'm not going to say sweet, (laughs) but more melodic. And it's so many different things. I think that really is something that I come back to every time that it's not like an album that stays on the same plane the whole time. It moves around a lot. It's like this kind of living, breathing thing, um, which I find... Yeah, it's so exciting to listen to. It is. And you're touching on something, I think, in terms of how iconic it is that the album cover, which is, of course, a, a photo by her her friend, uh, Robert Maplethorpe, is so part, is so canon at this point that without even listening to the record, people think they know this album. So it is easy for it to make lists. I mean, I th- or to be included in people's even favorite Patti Smith albums, even though I would argue there are much more listenable, you know, melodious Patti Smith albums. Easter for sure. Radio Ethiopia, that has more of a rock vibe to it. But I think there is this conflation because it just it just flung itself onto the canvas, you know, with this with this image that was so different than the way a woman had ever portrayed herself on an album cover, you know, and and the references and just the sort of announcement of a decade and the time and unapologetic, you know, like references to William S. Burroughs and Rimbaud and Baudelaire and Keith Richards and, and Jim Morrison, you know, it's just all there for the taking. So I do think it's one of those albums that does so much work before you now, like now that it's existed in the world, just that image does so much of the work for you. It embeds in your psyche in a way where I think it is almost like before the album starts, you you feel like you know that album, which is not true of a lot of records. That's how bold that image is. That's how much is imprinted upon us, that it's sort of one in the same. And you could just almost not even be able to name three songs on it. And still claim horses has some influence upon you. Yeah. Yeah. That image, uh, I think, is what draws a lot of people into it if they've never heard of her, if they happen upon it. I mean, I don't know how many people sadly have the pleasure of going to record stores anymore. But um, when people were more active in record stores, flipping through and coming across that image, and it's like this... When she talks about it now, she says she doesn't see her, she sees us because it was this pivotal relationship. I don't know if have either of you read Just Kids, the book she wrote about Robert Maplethorpe. Yeah. So yeah. incredible. And just this like deep era defining, life defining love between the two of them that was like, you know, started out as romantic and then just became this kind of life partnership. And the way he photographed her, the way she styled herself that was like not really styling outside of like throwing the coat over her shoulder and just saying, this is, these are the clothes that I feel comfortable in. This is my style. This is me. I don't want it to be, you know, I don't want to put on a bunch of makeup. I don't want to put on a dress. I don't want to do anything that feels artificial. And also the kind of playing with gender identity and definitely her closeness to the queer community to, you know, had so many Im- really important queer people in her life. And whether you read that explicitly or not in that image, so much of that feeling comes through. It's just so like powerful and emotional. I just, yeah, I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess 
once you get past <laughs> that and actually delve into the music, like you were saying, the kind of denseness of the references and the influences and all of that, like I, I have a tendency to kind of romanticize as many people do that time period in New York. So I guess like, do you, do you both feel any kind of uh, affinity for that era in New York or feel like that's something that you are drawn to as, as artists or just, you know, personally? I think it was one of the first eras that I was sad I missed. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. there's, it's rare to want to, to miss something that you weren't a part of, but like great books, like Love Goes to the Building on Fire, all these just amazing stories about that time, how fertile it was, how artistic, how f free, you know, the word freedom comes up so much on this album, CBGBs, just this, these formations of, and all the influence, whether it was, you know, reggae or beat poetry or punk, like all coming together you know, her relationship with Tom Verlaine and them writing songs together, you know, that Lenny Kay, like all, all of it is just, it just feels so vital. And it's, it's, yeah, it just gives you that weird yearning, nostalgic feeling for something that you weren't even around for. And it, it, you can hear it in the, in the, the DNA of that in so many bands, you know, the, the essence, everyone trying to return to that, you know, if there's so many bands that when they start out, they're trying to return to something that they hear in those songs, some image they see, you know, at the Mud Club or CBs of early Talking Heads or Patti Smith with a neck brace on stage or just, you know, all these iconic, amazing images. So yeah, I, I think it's easy to romanticize that uh, because it it truly, you know, was the, the genesis of, of so many things that we still appreciate. Yeah, for sure. Um, Corin, do you feel that same kind of uh, uh, nostalgic yearning for something that uh, you weren't a part of? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like part of what I loved about Olympia was there was this just real, I don't know if it's fetishization or just fascination with that time period, you know, that all that music we would just listen to records all the time. That was just like dance parties and record parties. And people would be like, oh, have you heard this record? What about this? I have the first Velvet Underground record. And, and the whole scene that was happening there, you know, it was like, was really honored by the musical scene in Olympia that we came out of. And it was like such a great background because it, it was complex musically. And it was also that just there were kind of no rules. Like you're taking a cover of a song by them, but you're like beginning it with like Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Like it was just, it was like throwing out everything about music and, you know, coming up with new ideas that were, it was like feeding off of each other in a really interesting way, which we tried to do in Olympia. We fed off of each other. We all were in bands so we competed with each other, but we gave each other ideas as well. Yeah. There's like nine things going through my mind just from that. But like specifically about, I talk a lot on the show about cover versions and I am of the mind that there is absolutely no point in doing a cover if you're not going to do something different with it and make it your own. And I think this version of that song is better. I'm sorry to Van Morrison. I'm sure that he would disagree, but it's like the, the <laughs> examples that come to my mind. It's like you, you think of um, even when it's a cover of something that's still a really good original version, like, you know, Otis Redding doing Respect and then Aretha Franklin covering it, where it's just like, oh, 
it's a completely different song. It's the the message is different. The the tone is different. And with this, with that version of Gloria, it's like another world. Um, she just really makes it her own, really, you know, personalizes it by adding her own lyrics. But yeah, it's it's just incredible. That's like magical when those kinds of things happen. And then creating that art in an environment where, you know, you look at like the list of the people who were living in the Chelsea Hotel at that time. It's like, Jesus fucking Christ, how were all of these people not just alive at the same time, not just making work at the same time, but like living together, working on each other's projects, all playing at the same clubs and having this scene come out. You know, that kind of New York just can't exist anymore, at least not in the same way, because who what artists can afford to live in Manhattan, much less live together in a really cheap building, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's just kind of unfathomable that um, it, it is, I think that's what makes me feel so nostalgic about that entire time is that it was this special configuration of the way that people lived and the people they had access to and all of that, that just made all of this incredible work. Did, did either of you get to go to CBGB's before it closed. We played there. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, we played there. That's something you could have looked up before I talked to you. No, but. that's okay. That's totally <laughs> fine. Uh, it was pretty early on. Uh, I think we played there twice. We played in 96 and 97. We definitely played on the Dig Me Out tour. And there, there are photos on the internet somewhere of us playing uh, Cat Power, Oh, no, that was a different tour that Cat Power opened. She just walked on stage and did a couple songs. But on the Dig Me Out tour, we played. I just, the thing is, that club at the time, I mean, it's gross. The bath, I just remember that the bathroom was disgusting. I remember that it was crowded and really unwieldy. But at the same time, I remember being shocked later, like going back once it disappeared. You know, it's one of those things like when you're young and coming up, you think these places are going to be around forever. You, you're 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 stepping into this in, indelible. Yeah, you're you're stepping into a whole infrastructure that you assume is steady. And of course, a few years later, it closed, and now it's like a, that Barbados store or something like it might be something else now. But I, it was that for a while. But that that other weird thing happens where once you're actually there, it's just another, it's both just another show and CBGBs. But I think part of that is, again, the assumption that it is ongoing, right? Like, oh, we, we get to be here and it will just always be here. But then it's not. So I do feel lucky to have played there. But each era informs the energy there. So when we were playing in the 90s, I just don't know if it felt like what it, you know, I, I have no idea. There were probably, for all I know, there were more people there when we played, you know, sometimes, and I, I don't, yeah, I don't know, but we did get to play there and it was awesome and covered in graffiti and very gross, but fun. Time for a quick break because somebody's got to keep the lights on around here, but we'll be right back. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL, Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. 
you've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's another thing I think about the changing character of this city is like the way the Bowery is now, where it's the you know the same way that everything in Manhattan is just like posh and cleaned up. And I was thinking this the other day. I used to work at the Bowery Hotel, which is just up the street from where CBGB's was. And this guy who I worked with, there used to be a theater across the street. And he said he grew up in Williamsburg in like the 80s. And he went on a field trip to that theater and came out and there's like needles all over the ground. And there's people screaming like, you fucking kids, get the fuck out of here. And seeing it now where it's like pristine and um, you know the whole vibe is is just gone but like you said it is this kind of ephemeral thing um in in sometimes i mean i also think of like i grew up in the twin cities and thinking of a place like first ave in minneapolis that's been around for decades and decades but it's different and um you know it is the slow march of time stuff that uh things will change but it's like still i guess the weight of knowing what has happened there and all the people who've played there before you is still present even if the venue changes or whatever i mean is is that your experience like playing in in venues that you played in a very long time ago and then seeing them now and they feel like they've been judged does that affect your feeling of being there i mean yeah i think i think we do feel the connection with history when we play a, a place like first Ave or cbgb's for sure but yeah it is you know it's a weird it's a weird business because you're attached to a venue for one night, it becomes your home for like 24 hours where you're, you're like kind of bringing your whole thing there. And so it is like a very personal relationship that's very quick, but you know, it does matter what it sounds like, what it looks like, what it feels like, what the backstage is like, like all of that stuff really matters. But, you know, I think, I think you're just willing to, like at CBG, we were absolutely willing to just <laughs> sort of like just deal with the the dirt and the graffiti and the germs because it was connected to all of that musical history that that you know helped us become who we were you know yeah it's weird with a venue like the black cat or the 930 club in dc or first avenue in minneapolis where what changes often is the neighborhood around it and the, the venue sort of maintains its original character, you know, with with some updates, but becomes a relic. It starts to feel anomalous within the neighborhood as everything else gets newer and shinier. And it almost feels like a performance of a venue. You know, it just starts to feel meta or like this simulacra or something. It's it, There's a surreal quality to it. And I I do 
appreciate, you know, when people fight to keep venues there, you know, to, to fight to keep, and it's not just venues, you know, people fight to keep old restaurants there and stores. And, you know, that's just part of the acknowledgement of, of history in, in, a, in a neighborhood. So it's, it is really important. And then, but the, the other side of that, of course, is that you're always fighting the impulse, I guess, to look back, right? And to get ossified and into this like nostalgic mindset. So it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a strange way because when we, when now, you know, we have a new record out and, you know, we want to tour with that and you want to be sort of in the present and reckoned with by who you are now. So it's just all all the nostalgic stuff around or, you know, lamenting the past is tricky when you are you know, wanting to be sort of assessed in in the present moment and in your the current version of yourself. So I, I like these conversations around art and cities and culture because, you know, we all get trapped in that like sort of, I don't know, it's just a comforting feeling. It's like a warm blanket of nostalgia. And then you're like, oh, I just, I, I've got to get unstuck from that. Yeah. And it, I, I think it is tough. I've had uh, conversations with people about just like uh, architecture changing the nature of cities, especially like European cities that are really old and people are very resistant to, you know, having some very modernist skyscraper or something being thrown in, which makes sense. But it's a balance and saying cities are not museums. They are going to change. There's, uh, you know, going to be upsetting moments where somebody, uh, a club that has really huge significance to the history of music is going to get closed down. And I guess what's left is the art, <laughs> the artistry. And, you know, people have memories of um, playing in those venues. It's obviously not the same thing to listen to a record as it is to see live music. But the legacy of all of this stuff, the legacy of horses, which is like, my God, the impact that Patti Smith has had on so many people. And one of the things that I find, I, I don't know if... I think she understands what that impact is, but I don't think she can quite handle it. Like when I see interviews with her where people will say like, oh my God, you are the greatest in history. And she just kind of goes, uh, I don't know, like, don't, don't talk to me. Uh, you, you say that. I don't say that. But uh, yeah, this like outsized, enormous impact of this one album and how much it changed music and laid the foundations for punk and for new wave and all of the stuff that came after that. And thinking about the seeds of those things happening in this scene and happening in clubs like CBGBs, again, I'm, you know, my cyclical thinking, I'm coming back to the same point, but just um, how special it is to have those kinds of artistic communities and uh, being able to support other artists who are your contemporaries. And sometimes there's a little competition, but sometimes it's really about collaboration and that all of those venues that we've been talking about are not the be all and end all, but they help to foster those connections. So yeah, I mean, and I'm projecting my own shit onto this as someone who's not a musician, but do you, does that resonate with you? Does that feel like something that you've experienced? I mean, in terms of like community building through these venues or, um, you know, just the, the lasting impact that they have on you after you've played in them. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, um, I think that we we value that in terms of um, you know what a venue can bring to a community, and we try to play places that are you know good to artists, good to the community as much as we can. And also that that conversation and scenes that that regionalism, that volleying back and forth 
of ideas and influence and what you hinted at, trying to one-up each other, those things are crucial, right? Those, those make scenes really fruitful and, and innovative. And you, you know, talking about like Minneapolis, you, you can feel it back in the day with like replacements competing with Soul Asylum, right? Or it's just, I love history like that, where you can just feel everyone trying to outdo the next, the other band, right? They're building up, they, they value each other, they respect each other, but they're like, well, we want, oh, you guys did this? Okay, well, we're going to do this. I mean, this is as old as time, right? I mean, whether it's like Stones, Hugh, the Stones, the Who, and, you know, the, the Beatles, or whether it's Minneapolis or DC or Seattle, you know, Los Angeles, like all these scenes were always doing this. England is a great example of that too, whether, you know, you're up in like Manchester during like certain eras, you know, like the Smiths, all, all those bands were like, they, they had other, there were progenitors that they were trying to outdo, trying to best, you know, they, they hear someone incorporating some new sound in a song and they're like, we're going to do that too. And we're going to do it better. Or we need to think of the new thing. And I, I think clubs have a big play a big role in that because that's where you see it for the first time, right? That's where you see that some other band is now using a cool echoplex like reverb thing. And you're like, oh, damn, that is awesome. Okay. They're bringing that on stage. Okay. You know, like I just remember like seeing Unwound and Justin Trosper would have some cool like effects gear on stage and I would be jealous of that. And, you know, I just, those kinds of things, that is where you get all of that, like it just becomes so condensed and combustible. And then, you know, you, you get these little conflagrations, you know, and historically of all of this music and New York was obviously that, you know, they were so clearly in conversation and they would go see each other and also imagine performing, you know, Patti Smith had Warhol in the audience sometimes like, you know, it's, it's also who is there, who are you, you know, you, you have somebody that's a writer that you love in the audience. You have someone that's a painter that you love in the audience. You have some fellow guitarist or singer in the audience. So you do something more galvanic on stage because you want to show off for them. This is, you know, this is how this stuff becomes great because you're not just recording in your bedroom to no one, you know, and it's different. I'm not saying you can't make a great record in your bedroom to no one, but the reason these scenes were so inventive were because they were in conversation with other people and with themselves over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it is like the community effect, the um, connection between human beings, which is like, you know, obvious that people need connection with each other. And when you're developing artwork, having people who can spur you on, having people who can challenge you, having people who can encourage you. Yeah, all, all of that stuff, I think, makes uh, art what it is. And even if that connection is like you doing stuff in your bedroom and then sharing it with people and getting the reaction from them. Yeah. So I guess to that end, the loose segue here, I guess, uh, thinking about the way that artists connect with each other and the effects that they have on each other. If you can think of like the the impact that this album that Horses has had on you, whether that's personally or professionally in uh, an ongoing way, you know, from that moment when you first heard it, um, how your relationship with it has evolved and changed, any of those thoughts. I know that's a compound question, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that this album affected me on on several different levels. You know, I think you know the kind of personal inspiration of having someone 
be such a poet in so many different ways of so many different voices on one album, you know, going from like Gloria to Redondo Beach. You know, she was like so like intense and then like really able to be like super playful. You know, it's like I think that helps you realize that you can have a lot of different voices on one album or on one in one song, you know. So I think that's that's one of the biggest influences for me. Yeah. I I think for me there's something really tattered and unkempt about the, the album. You know, you get to a song like Birdland and you're suddenly halfway through it and you realize it's nowhere, you know, you're five minutes in and it's nowhere near done. Like that that sense of seeking within a song, that's that sense of not even necessarily cohering around a single form or genre, allowing things to be a little ugly, you know, in her singing, it's, it's not, she's, you know, she wasn't coming at it from a, a, a folk, you know, she wasn't a folk singer. She didn't have a pretty voice. She was taking on, you know, male persona narrators. And also as a queer person, when I was, you know, listened to Gloria and, you know, she's, she's a woman playing a man, seducing a woman, it's super depraved. Like, you know, all that stuff was so coded. You had, when I was, you know, when I was in my early twenties, it was those kinds of songs that allowed me, you know, I put those songs on every mixtape I made for someone, you know, just that I had a crush on. Like, here's Gloria. Here's a song that allows me to express a sexuality or a feeling. And then I love, you know, you get to the to the end of the album and it's, you know, sort of those three songs, it's land. And, um, you know, she's just the sheer amount of references in that song I also love, you know, that, she, um, and there's just an experimentation there. There is, um, a deconstructing and an expansion of form that I think really is inspired. It's so inspired. And I think we have taken just the unconventional nature of it, but also the belief in music, the belief in our four forebears, I guess those, the, the, the people, you know, just the, the belief that even the stuff that is a little wrong works, you know, like I, I love just that, that statement, that purpose. And even if she didn't, you know, like, even though she wasn't, she, Patti Smith didn't know what this album would become, like, you hear it in the songs. It's so unapologetic. And I just, I, I love that. It's, you want to make a record that sounds unapologetic, even if it's unapologetically very challenging at times, because it just believes in art. I love it. So great. Agreed. Um, I think that is a lovely note to finish on. My God, what a pleasure. Thank you both so much for, for making time for me. I really appreciate this. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Adam. Nice to talk to you. You too. Yeah, thank you. Oh my God. Amazing. 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 Thanks again to Carrie and Corin for making time for me. What, what, what an amazing thing. Cannot believe it. The new Slater Kinney album, Little Rope, is out on January 19th. Okay, <sighs> quick spark of the week from me. I finally saw Beyonce's Renaissance movie, and my God, I cannot. She is so fucking talented in so many ways, and she's so smart, and I love her so much, and it makes me want to scream. Um, obviously, the main focus is the actual show from the Renaissance tour, which is clearly incredible, but there's tons of behind-the-scenes stuff, and it's all so good. 
she really gives time and space to everyone who worked with her to make the show happen. She shows the work that went into the building and transporting her enormous and super complicated set. She highlights lots of the dancers, and they are incredibly talented too. But the thing that really uh, put a lump in my throat was her full-throated and completely joyous support and love for queer people. Last week, I talked to Peppermint about Janet Jackson and everything she's done for queer folks. But God, Beyonce's support goes beyond even that. Like, Renaissance is a queer album, and she's super, super explicit about that. She's very clear about the people who influence the music, and she's invited a lot of them to appear on the album. It's it's not about just like taking those sounds and infusing them into her music because she thinks it sounds cool. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's that too. But she saw how many of these highly influential queer musicians and performers have never gotten their due. And she did something to rectify it. She, she is a fucking class act. She is one of the best and most important performers this world has ever known. So go and see this movie. Um, you know, I'm obviously a fan. But even if you don't think that she's that great... You will still love it. I promise. Okay. And that's about it for this week. Please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. Please rate the show five stars and leave me a cute little review wherever you can because it's a very huge help. And until next time, bye. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's Nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's K-N-I-X.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.